What's going on, Law Nation? Welcome to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, the best place for learning about the world of alternative passive investing so that you can practice when you want to and not because you have to. So if you're ready to kick that billable hour to the curb, start by going to attorneybydesign.com to download the Freedom Blueprint. This will also get you access to opportunities to partner with us on one of our next passive real estate investments. Today, let's talk about rare earth metals. Say what? No, we're not talking about gold and silver. We're not. We're talking about rare earth metals or elements like cerium and scandium and a whole bunch of other metals that I can't pronounce. There are actually 17 of them, in fact, and these metals are an integral part of technologies like smartphones and electric vehicles. Something like 60% of all rare earth metals are produced in China, which creates an interesting supply and demand dynamic that investors can take advantage of. In this episode, we're going on a crash course on investing in these metals, as well as the concept of geographic diversification. Louis O'Connor is the founder of Strategic Metals Invest, which offers private investors the opportunity to physically own and operate from holding strategic metals as tangible assets. Lou is Mr. Worldwide. He's tuning in from his home country of Ireland, has spent decades throughout Central and South America, and does business all around the globe, including right here in the U.S. All right, let's dive in. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra-wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Lou, what's going on, brother? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Seth. Great to, great to be here. Ha hands across the Atlantic. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Where are you tuning in for our, for our listeners that don't know? I am in beautiful Tipperary in, in Ireland, um, west, coast of, west coast of Ireland. There we go. The, the beauty of technology, right? Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, uh, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. That's, I, I think that's one great thing that did come out of the pandemic is just kind of the, the widespread acceptance of being able to communicate via Zoom. Because before it was just kind of weird, right? You're like, oh, we're meeting over the internet. We're meeting on video conferencing. And now it's just normal and accepted and everybody does it. Yeah, yeah, we, we've, um, the technology was there, but I guess we're just really, you know, value it now and, and more than, more than before, you know, I mean, it's a, you can go anywhere, you can zoom anywhere in the world, you know? Yep, absolutely, man. All right, well, let's jump into your background a little bit. I know you have an incredibly interesting background and, and your travels and all that. So, you know, what's your story? Take it back as far as you'd like. Okay, so yeah, I was born in, in Ireland, not in Tipperary, where I am now. I was born in Dublin. Um, during that time, um, well, when I grew up here, we still had a lot of, uh, you know, political sort of situation in the north of Ireland and sort of sectarian sort of warfare going on. Uh, no economic prosperity, a lot of emigration. Um, so I sort of knew from you know, very early age, you know, I wanted to get on the road and, uh, you know, I mean, I think if, if deep down, you know, there's more, there's more going on in the world than, than throwing, you know, bombs and stuff, you know, so, so look, I wanted to see the world and I did, I went to um, Germany, first of all, um, and I, I spent about eight years there, well, traveling all throughout Central Europe at that time, you know, that was before, the Euro, so, you know, all the borders were still up and, you know, I lived in Germany, but if you cross into France, you know, you had the French franc there and the Luxembourg franc and the Dutch guilder and, you know, it, now, you know, it's all one economic zone and, and one currency, but, and then I ended up, I landed in, I uh, always wanted to go to Latin America and I think in those early days, Seth, my priority was travel and adventure, you know. And the greatest experience I've ever had and still have to this day is going somewhere I've never been before, you know, whether that's, you know, Krakow in Poland or Medellin in Colombia. You know, you arrive somewhere and you head out the first evening, you walk around a corner and your, your sort of senses are on full alert, you know, the smells, the sights, the sounds, everything is new. And to this day, that's still the biggest pleasure, joy I take in life. So... So I'm still traveling. I have a wife and kids now 
as well that keep me fairly the the uh, the anchor has been thrown down for a while. <laughs> um, how how did you get instilled with that passion for travel and adventure? It seems like I, I know that I I wasn't. I'm was always interested, but I grew up kind of in a, a blue collar type of type of scenario, and and in West Virginia, we're a little bit isolated there. So. Um, but when I did finally get out, I studied abroad um, in Barcelona for a summer. And oh, that was kind of like the eye-opening moment. That was late. I mean, that was when I was in law school uh, when I did that. But it was, you know, I was there long enough to kind of get engulfed by the culture a little bit rather than yeah. just visiting for like a week or a few days or something like that. And yeah. it kind of opened your eyes, right? You see that there's other ways to succeed, other ways that other cultures do things. And yeah. it's different from where you grew up and it still works. Right. And I think yeah. it just kind of opened your mind up to those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think you sort of, you nailed it there a little bit as well in the sense that, um, um, our, you know, Ireland is a small Island. I mean, we're part of Europe, uh, but we're on the Western tip and it's still an Island. So it's probably no bigger than maybe West Virginia, you know, yet you're, you're now living in California yet you, you know, in a way you've actually traveled as well, although you're in the same country. I mean, the U.S. is so, I think if I was born in America, you know, it's probably still be there finding new places. It's so big. And, sure. you know, I mean, what country has Alaska, right, with, with, the, with the snow and the wilderness, you know, one, and then you go all the way down to Florida, which, you know, which has a tropical climate. So there's so much sort of there, but, you know, uh, Ireland was smaller and, and, and that was part of it, you know, uh, uh, you know this you know you can drive across ireland in in about three hours you know where you couldn't do that in america right <laughs> yeah yeah for sure so you, you had no choice you had to get out <laughs> yeah had to get yeah, out and, and explore and, and glad i did you know yeah yeah so did you so you started traveling pretty early did you ever and i know you're an investor and an entrepreneur now but did you ever kind of get into you know the the normal corporate type of jobs at any point in time or did you never kind of dive into that i did actually for the first 10 or 15 years my 20s till i was about 35 i worked for a u.s company actually that had offices all over the world and that actually did allow me they had offices nearly in every country in europe the middle east korea japan um, and that did allow me to travel a bit and that's sort of what brought me to panama in central america the very very first time and I sort of fell in love with, with, with Central America, Latin America, the Latin culture. And then I met my wife, who my wife is from Mexico. She was born in Guadalajara, but she had moved with her family as well to Panama. And, um, and then I sort of stayed after, after meeting um, Daphne, my wife. And um, I just, there's something special about Latin America. I mean, I, I've been, I've traveled a lot there, Colombia. Venezuela and the Caribbean, you know, the islands and stuff and all of Central America. And there's something really special about the place. I can't quite describe what it is, but it's just very sort of adventurous and exciting to me, you know, Latin America. Yeah. Yeah. How, how much time did you spend there? Uh, 20 years, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very cool. um, yeah. It's a one, wonderful place. Um, and um yeah, I mean, Colombia now, I don't know. Oh, look, that's probably for another conversation. I'd be talking about travel all day, Seth. I'll let you continue. I'll let you go on. Keep going. All good. I, I will mention that I, I have been to Colombia as well. And, you know, when I booked that trip with my wife, people were kind of, family members were like, hey, you're going to go to Colombia? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And then and it yeah. was. I, did, I didn't feel unsafe at any point in time. It was such a beautiful country. Um, and we traveled all around there for a couple of weeks, and it was awesome. Oh, great um, stuff. Good stuff, yeah. 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 So, you know, you're in that corporate job. At what point did you kind of start having that aha moment? We always kind of look at those, those moments uh, when you start thinking, you know, maybe there's another way to make money. I need to start looking at investing in different sorts of things and, and start looking at alternative investments. Kind of, did you have an aha moment like that? Um, do you know what I think, um, Seth? I think all sort of wisdom and sort of uh, and wisdom meaning a mix of sort of intelligence and sort of compassion, you know, um, uh, I think comes from sort of failure and, and sustained sort of learning, you know, and I suppose what I, I did, you know, I was lucky enough that I did very well in my early twenties in Germany and I was, and I was smart enough or somebody was smart enough to tell me to 
buy some property. So I bought property in Ireland when I was very young and, and before there was any sort of an economic boom here. So I'd started to get on the property ladder and in a way, you know, ignorance is bliss because I didn't know much else. I didn't, you know, I, you know, Ireland, you know, we hadn't had any economic prosperity. So you wouldn't hear people talking about investing in stocks and shares and stuff like you might in the US, you know, we just didn't have that level of experience or, or know-how. So in a way I started in a good way because I didn't know much, but I knew property was safe, you know? Um, and then what sort of propelled me out of that sort of corporate job was, um, you know, oh, I, I you know, and, I th and, and this is true. I mean, all sort of, um, institutions if you will whether they're institutionalized religion or government or corporate environments because they have one mission that one mission is to the survival and success of that organization then everybody who's a part of it if you're not aligned with that one mission um you, you you're you're not going to you're going to do well or you're going to leave or and to do well, I think, you know, like if you look at most CEOs and most really successful people, there's something a little bit screwy there. If you want to, you know, anyone that wants to rule the world, there's something a little bit, you know, off, I think, you know. So, so I just, after a few years in that environment, realized this is not the healthiest place in the world to be because, you know, people will sort of, you know, throw people under the bus or, you know, when somebody wants to get to the top of the ladder, They'll just get there as fast as I can and they climb over whoever they need to, you know, not to say there's not also good, healthy people there as well. But the very nature of an institution or a corporation fosters that environment and, and still does today. So so again, I suppose I wanted to get away from that. And the natural next step was to sort of foster my own self-reliance, independence, where I didn't have to, um, you know, could make my own decisions. And, you know, I could stand by them, whether they, whether they succeeded or failed, I, you know, I, I just had that sole responsibility, you know? Yeah, I love that. And that's kind of one thing we talk about on this podcast all the time is, is kind of being self-sufficient, kind of creating your own economy by you know, investing in alternative assets, creating your own companies, investing in businesses, things like that. So you're not so dependent on, you know, the corporate job, whether that's a law firm or, you know, a medical practice or whatever it might be. Um, just so you can be independent and financially free. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, since then, it's sort of permeated into all my life. I think if possible, we should be diversified in every way we can, you know, like multiple passports, multiple residencies, and, you know, do your banking in multiple jurisdictions, maybe have your business in one country and, and reside in another. Because I think for full safety and diversification, it's always good to have sort of a, a, you know, a plan B and a plan C. Now, I'm not, I'm not sort of in any way doom and gloom about, oh, the world's going to end or these countries are going to fail, but it's just great to have options, you know. Um, and the more options you have, the better, just in case one day you do decide you want to, you know, a different climate or geographical move, whatever the case might be. It's good to have, uh, you know, those backups, to have a parachute in case you need it, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's something we haven't talked about on this show at all. And I think you call that uh, geographic diversification, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I maybe, think it's important yeah. um, for like, for example, I mean, I have a bit of experience with it, so I, I, I can share. But like Panama, for example, is one of them, arguably the most one of maybe the easiest country in the world to have a second residency and in five years, a second passport. But what people wouldn't know about Panama is one it doesn't even, I don't, the only fee to do that is like the legal fee. So for between three and $5,000, you can have a residency in another country. The other thing is you don't have to be there all the time. Some countries, Colombia is one of them, Dubai is another. They sort of make, ask you, or if you want to keep your residency, you've got to be there 90 days or sometimes six months of the year. With Panama, you don't even, you only have to be there one day out of every two years. And here's the kicker. All your worldwide income is tax-free if you're a resident of Panama. So you can be resident in Panama, spending most of your time traveling the world, uh, and, 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 and all your income outside of Panama is tax-free. Now, that apply, that's a little bit different for me because I'm, I'm a European, I have a European passport. And like, if I'm 
I can have an Irish passport. And if I'm out of Ireland more than six months a year, I don't have to pay any taxes here. Whereas if you're, unfortunately, Uncle Sam, um, you know, has global taxation. I think one of only two countries in the world that do. So, you know, I know from my fellow sort of American friends in Panama that they still have to do a tax return there. But, but there's a thing you can do. You can be a non-resident of the U.S., and as a you have a threshold, you can earn a certain amount. I think it's ninety or hundred thousand dollars a year, tax free. And then after that, you you, you have to look at uh, your taxes. Interesting. Yeah, that's something to look into. So, are you still a resident of Panama? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And and maybe could you go into you know how that how that geographic diversification kind of protects you from from certain risks? I mean, you you kind of touched on it, but maybe go in there a little bit further. Yeah, look, I mean, anything can happen. I mean, who knows what the future holds, you know? Um, um, you know, war, for example. I mean, look at Ukraine at the moment. I and mean, we, we have a family, Ukrainian family here, um, a grandmother, uh, daughter, and, and young, young girl who are here. Um, you know, six months ago, they couldn't have dreamed they'd be in Ireland, right? Away from their, their family and stuff. Um, but as well, let's suppose, you know, the, the residence you're in or the, 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 the government administration you're in just, I don't know, decided one day to go completely crazy and say, well, from now on, it's 80% tax because we need the money. Um, you know, when you have a backup residency and a backup passport, you'll be one of the few people that can make a choice on whether that's acceptable to you or not. So I think it just gives you that choice, you know. I think the one or the last of the human freedoms that we always have, and even in really extreme situations, we always have a freedom to choose, right? And that's what I want to always maintain is I want to always have a choice. If something is thrown at me from, you know, exterior sources, whether it's tax, whether it's war, whatever it might be, I'd like to have a choice and a plan B and a plan C. And I think you know, again, I'm not sort of saying, oh, you know, leave America and go uh, and live in Panama because it's better. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, look, if by chance one day, you know, you wanted to leave, instead of having to look for a residency or look for somewhere to go, you know, like even your trip to, to Colombia, I mean, you know now what Colombia is like. You have an idea, you know, so that might be something you'd consider in the future. So just about having, giving yourself choices, really, you know. Yeah, I love this, man. I love this. So let, let's kind of pull, change gears a little bit, but it, it's kind of related. Let, let's talk about your your current business with with rare earth metals and, and how that kind of ties into this this idea of you know ge sure. geographic diversification. Yeah, and it and it does still, Seth, because um, like my last ten years in Panama, I was based in Panama, but I was you know I was working sort of in with businesses in Colombia. Uh, Nicaragua, um, Ecuador, um, Uruguay, uh, Brazil at one point. So um, I was based in Panama, but you know my business was elsewhere. And I knew I wanted to come back to Europe for a while, but I didn't. Uh, the taxes are almost fifty percent here in Ireland, and I, you know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't think I want to, you know, work and deal with that forever, you know. So um, yeah, I was looking for a good opportunity. Um, and my business is, although I'm in, in Ireland, my business actually is in Germany. Uh, my clients are in either uh, United Kingdom, Australia, or North America. That's why I'm chatting with you. Um, we've just started marketing in, in the US. It's a new asset class that I'm pretty much sure any of your listeners will, will not have heard before because it wasn't available to private investors before. So, um, yeah, it gives me that, you, you know, the, the business being in Germany again, um, it, it sort of, you know, allows me as well to do sort of um, travel and, 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 and banking in different jurisdictions. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that. Tell us a little bit more about that business. What, what is it and, you know, how, how, will, how can someone get involved? Okay, so Seth, I'm going to tell you as quickly as I can, but if, if I tell you something and you get a question, interrupt me, okay. um, and so I can answer that question, right? Got it. You're, 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 ta you're, you're taking, you're your whole audience right now, do you know what I mean? So the first thing I would tell you to, to allow people to understand it um, 
is it's exactly the same paradigm as owning gold or silver, except investors can purchase rare earth metals. Um, so my company is called Strategic Metals Invest. Strategic metals is an umbrella term for technology metals, rare earth elements, rare earth metals, um, green metals now, which, so those, for example, indium is a rare earth. You couldn't swipe your phone without indium, right? There's about 12 different rare earths in indium. Now, until very recently, um, the only, well, let me just backpedal one. The only real buyer or end buyer for rare earths are industry buyers like, you know, Apple computers, Siemens, BMW, Tesla. Um, they're the only buyers. So you're, you're probably wondering how can an investor participate in that? Well, my business partner in Frankfurt is, is an industry supplier. So 80% of what they do is they buy metals mostly from China, because China is the dominant sort of market leader in rare earths, but from other places as well. So they buy metals and they resell them uh, to industry buyers. So what they did, they've been doing that for 30 years. And about 12 years ago, they opened a side business, if that's what you want to call it, where they now allow private investors to purchase the same metals, store them safely. And then when they, went, when they want to liquidate them, that same company will sell them for you. So they provide the exit as well. Now, here's the kicker before you can come in with questions, Seth. Rare earths have outperformed gold consistently for the last five years. I'll give you the numbers exactly. Gold has gone up 58% between 2017 and 2022. So it's gone up a little, an average of a little over, you know, 11% a year. Rare earths are going up 34 between 35 and 40% every year. So they're very, very profitable. Um, but you have to be very, very careful we, because we're the only industry supplier. And again, industry supplier is the key word. If we weren't an industry supplier, there's no point in doing this because you can't liquidate it, right? So we're the only industry supplier in the world that actually offers this option to private investors. Got it. Um, so we'll start kind of from the beginning here. I've got a ton of questions, but you know, what are some of the, what are some of the, the most common metals and, and what are they, what are the technologies they're using? You mentioned cell phones. Are there others? Excellent. Good question. Yeah. Basically in all modern technology, they're critical and sort of irreplaceable to all modern technology. Um, you know, gallium, indium, rhenium. Um, also now the reason reason they're sort of so profitable and will continue to be is because of sort of COVID related disruption to the supply chain. But also now we have this massive, we're going through this unbelievable transformation over the next five to eight to 10 years where, um, you know, 80% of global emissions come from how we power our daily lives. We're about to transform how we do that from our, you know, to electric cars, uh, solar energy, wind power. So those are the green metals like dyscrosium, praseodymium, um, dyscrosium, neodymium. Yeah, those are the mostly those. So um, other industries, you know, where are medical devices, military applications, aviation, I mean, you name it. Um, rare earths are there. They're critical to how we, you know, how we live, basically. Got it. And these are, you know, all those things that you mentioned are, you know, uh, technologies that we're using more and more, right? We're not talking about dated technologies or dated uses. These are future uses and future technologies that we're kind of using right now and, and using more and more as, as we go along. Um, it, it, is it possible that these are replaceable? in any way, or are these going to be it? I mean, you have to mine these rare earth metals to utilize these technologies moving forward. Yeah, good question. Um, look, that's there's all, like, what, what are the pros and cons, right? And, and there's always when you're, when, when, when sort of supply and demand are in charge, and, and that's all that's in charge here is supply and demand. There's always that risk of, well, what if they find a better metal for iPhones, 
Um, th th those, those are, you know, those are realistic possibilities. Um, the only thing I would say, though, if you look, you know, once people do their proper due diligence and sort of um, investigation, what you'll find out is that China um, produces more than 60% of the world's rare earths. And um, they, without a doubt, are the dominant market leader in rare earths. Um, as you mentioned, like the technology, like, for example, in, in the modern world or maybe the, in, in the Western world where people have disposable income, people are still replacing their phones and, you know, devices regularly. Then we have all the sort of Brazil, Russia, India, China sort of delivering, you know, hundreds of millions of people into the middle class. They also want, you know, that more modern technology. Um, so it's just because of the, you know, particularly the what we call the oxides, the powdered form of rare earths. There's, there, I, I, I mean, you might find they'll improve on the technology, but I don't see the metals getting replaced anytime soon. And if they do, it'll be with another rare earth because they all have that malleable sort of performance where they can perform under very, very high temperatures like nuclear reactors and uh, jet turbine engines. But then also they can perform, you know, in, in lower, lower categories as well. So, yeah, it doesn't look like in the next 10 or 15 years anyway, there'll be any short, any shortage of demand for rare earth. In fact, demand is increasing and it's not going to it's not going to stop for a while. Awesome. Awesome. Um, where, where else are these actively mined? Uh, you said that 60 percent in China. Where, where else are they kind of produced from? Right. Well, um, in the, would you believe in the 1980s, 60% of the world's rare earths were produced in, in America, in, in, in uh, the US. And to date, I don't think anybody's quite sure what happened, but one indication is the premier of China in 1987, Deng Xiaoping made a very sort of a shrewd statement. He said, the Middle East has oil, China has rare earths. And was it that China somehow predicted, you know, the rise in technology? I mean, I, I think everybody knew it was coming. Maybe they just saw, you know, the how astronomical that demand was going to be. Um, so one thing China has is 50% of the world's rare earths. But at the moment, China also, because of their sort of years of experience since the 80s, they're about a generation ahead of the rest of the world. To give you an idea, there's one... Um, mine in, in the US producing rare earths, which is Mountain Pass in California. Now, all of the raw materials produced there are still sent to China to be refined. So any of the experts, I mean, like sort of academic experts, are what they're basically saying is between 2025 and 2030, when China reaches its sort of China's futures policy, which is to be domestically self-sufficient in 10 different industries. When they reach that, the West, meaning Europe and the US and other countries, will basically be standing in a line for what China will give after they've sort of, you know, taken care of their own quotas and their own demands. Give you an idea, like two of our metals doubled in value last year, Seth. At the same time, China doubled their production of electric cars. So you know, it, 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 you know, whatever they do will, will, you know, happens in the rest of the world, you know. But, you know, to give you an idea as well, both in a very rare occurrence of agreement, both President Trump and President Biden both signed executive orders, recognizing that America needs to wean its dependence of China. Now, Europe's the same, but just because you're in the U.S., I'm, I'm giving you the U.S., Europe's the same. We also are dependent on China. But both Trump and Biden signed these executive orders. So, you know, the winds of change are occurring, um, but it took China a generation to get here. It'll take, I think, as long for the West to figure this out. And in the meantime, investors can profit. That's, that's my, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether people believe in climate change or not. The fact is we are going to these more greener energies, right? It doesn't matter to me whether people are sort of support or proponents of, you know, or against China. I'm just talking about this purely from an, a pure investor point of view, which is, you know, how, how can we, what's going on and how can we profit from it? And that's, 
that's the reality right now. And and the numbers are on, you know, the numbers tell the truth, right? Um, rare earths are up 35% a year every year for the last five years. So that's all you need to know, right? As an investor. <laughs> yeah, 35%. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Um, but you but you can find these rare earths in other places. You can find them in the United States, you can find them in correct. Okay. Correct. On, you know. Although the name rare earths, some of them are not all that rare, but yeah, they can be found in Africa, in the US, in Europe, um, Australia. Um, so yeah, they're not all that rare. What's interesting about them, Seth, is they're always found, they're, they're always a byproduct of mining another raw material. So they're rare in the sense that they're sort of, they, they're in groupings and they have to be, that's what China does so well with geology and science and maths is how to sort of um, separate them and, and then sort of um, and, and, and retain those purity levels that are needed, you know. But yeah, they, they can be found like 50% of the world's reserves are in China. So the other 50% are in different locations, you know, around the world. Got it. Got it. Let's kind of dial it in a little bit. So you guys, um, you guys buy, do you guys buy these rare earth metals directly um, from miners uh, with the investor funds and then you store them and then sell them whenever the investors um, want to exit? Maybe go into that a little bit more, clean up yeah. my, my storyline a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, well, actually you, you, you did, you got it about 70, 80, maybe 90%, right? But it is right. very important to clarify, but no, you just about, you just about nailed it there. So very good for the first time round. Look, <laughs> no, and I'm, I you know it's true because look, a lot of times when I start talking about rare earths, I could see people, their eyes sort of glaze over and you've lost them in about 10 seconds. But you've picked up most of that there, which is so good for you, you know. So basically, 80% um, of our activities are buying and selling, you know, to industry. So that has nothing to do with the investment side, but if we weren't an industry supplier, we couldn't do the investment thing. So it's, it's sort of the most important thing about what we do is not the investment part. It's the fact that we buy from suppliers, from producers in China, and we sell them then to industry buyers. Just to give you an idea, in the vault in Frankfurt, we've two, more than 200 metric tons of inventory. Less than 20% of that is investor owned. Most of that is for industry buyers. So here's how it works. On a daily basis in the office, we're, we're buying and we're selling metals. Like this morning, just looking before we came on, we've sold metals to a, a factory in Germany. Uh, we had an order in from Japan and we've an order from Liechtenstein. So we're, we're doing business in over 70 different countries. So that's what we do 80% of the time. And the investor obviously should be really, really happy that's what we do. Because if we weren't doing that, we couldn't offer you the, the, the opportunity to invest. So as a side business, and, that, and that's a bit small of a word for it now, but we created this side business in 2010. We bought what was an underground bunker, an air raid shelter in World War II, converted it to a bank level secure vault. And we've been offering um, investors mostly in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the opportunity to buy the metal. So let's just give you an example. Let's say you were buying, you know, $100,000 worth of metals today. So we would send you an offer, you know, we, you know, you, you might say, Louis, I want to buy the metals that are all to do with modern technology. Give me those five metals. So we send you the metals with the purity levels and the analysis reports, the chain of custody. And once you accept the offer, um, you, you wire the funds directly to Tradium in Frankfurt, and then we order the metals. They'll take about a month to come in, maybe 60 days, between 30 and 60 days. And then when they arrive, we'll allocate them to the vault, to our storage facility in Frankfurt. And that's where they, you know, and then we, we'll update, you know, you've got your certificate of ownership, you've got your storage agreement, and we will update you weekly then. You'll get a performance sheet and you'll be able to see how each metal is performing and how the you know, your portfolio on average is performing. We recommend you own them for at least one year because um, if it's a, it's a, it's a bonded tax-free vault, just like Switzerland. So if you've kept, kept them a year, then there's no, um, there's no taxes, you know, on the, the purchase or the sale. So although they're in a vault in Frankfurt, you own them. You've got to sit there, you know, you own them um, just like you would gold or silver. 
Now, some people, I had a client recently say to me, an older gentleman um, from the South in America, and he said, Louis, he had that Southern drawl, which I won't do, but he said, I like to keep my gold close to home, you know? And I think what he meant was buried out in the backyard, right? He said, <laughs> so, you know, I'm not that comfortable with, um, you know, how in having them in Germany. So you need to settle me on that, you know? So, you know, what I said to him was, look, if you really wanted to, you can move your metals to, you know, America. They're your metals, you own them. However, you're all you're doing is adding cost to your investment because you'd have to pay for the transportation from Frankfurt to the US. You'd probably have to pay import duties. And here's the kicker. In five years, when you come back to us and you want us to sell them, we'll, we'll happily sell them for you, but you probably need to have them retested because they've, they've broken out of the chain of custody. So, you know, if Boeing or Apple Computers or the US Department of Defense are buying gallium for an F-35, you know, jet engine, they need to know exactly where those metals have been all the time. And if they're out of the chain of custody, they have to be retested. So, you know, we recommend you store them with us because they stay in the chain of custody. But if you really, really weren't comfortable with that, you can move them to Switzerland, you can move them to the US, but it's just going to cost you. Got it. That, that's interesting, man. You did a great job at explaining that. Like it's, it's a lot more clear now how that works. Um, you know, what are those tax things, those tax items and issues that we need to think about? You, you mentioned if you keep it in there for a year, you don't have to pay taxes on you know, the purchase and the sale. Um, is that only with respect to in Germany or? Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. 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 Obviously I'm a, I'm an Irish citizen and I can't, you know, for North America, you'd have to speak with your own, you know, tax advisor, or, you know, uh, accountant um, about sort of um, what's it called capital gains and stuff. So, yeah, I'm just speaking purely about sure. purchase and sale in Europe. You'd be, ta you'd be tax exempt. Gotcha. Do you have recommendations? You don't have to say them on here, but just people uh, in the U.S. that they could speak to about this. It is kind of a, a, an interesting and unique investment space. So it might need someone with some specific tax, sure. tax yeah. knowledge. I do. We, we, we do have a list. And also um, uh, for some, one client or more than one, but recently we'd one who um, wanted to use a sort of uh, an, uh, 401k and, and do a self-directed IRA. So, so yeah, we, we can put you in touch with, with, with independents who can, who can uh, advise you or make suggestions there. But I suppose the easiest way to understand it is for anybody who's, who, who's into gold or precious metals, the same rules apply. It's actually no different than buying gold or silver, whether you store them in Delaware or in Singapore or in Switzerland, it's, it's the same. And with rare earths, it's exactly the same thing. You're buying a tangible asset, you own it, you take delivery in a, you know, you might store it in a vault elsewhere, but you, you're the, you're the, the legal owner of the metals. Gotcha. And then I did hear you mention that you can diversify across a few different metals or a number of different metals, maybe in a, you know, the, these metals are with respect to, or in connection to, um, you know, modern technologies with phones and these are used in this and you can say, I want to invest in, you know, a hundred thousand dollars across evenly across these five or 10 metals or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good question. So there are in total, there are 17 rare earths. We only offer 10 though as tangible assets. The other seven are not all that rare and can be found in abundance. So, you know, there's no, there's no, um, there's no demand, supply demand play there. And we focus very much on the remaining 10, nine of which are critical to all modern technology um, wind power, solar power, electric mobility, you know, the, the, the metals that are needed for the, for the magnets for uh, electric motors. So generally we make, you know, we recommend for somebody, you know, to buy all 10 metals to begin. The minimum investment is only $10,000, by the way, Seth. You don't have to be an accredited investor in anything. So for example, for like about 12 and a half, $13,000, somebody could start off with one kilo of every metal we offer. So they can have a nice sort of a stable base in the portfolio. And then over time, once you've, once you've made the first purchase, there's no minimum second or third, like half of our clients are buying a second and a third time because 
the metals are going up in value. So you could start off with, you know, 13, 15, 20, $25,000 and build from there. Um, you know, as I said, we, we update, um, we update the prices weekly. So you can literally see every week how each metal is performing and what the average is for your portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. One last question before we get into the, the freedom for what's kind of your general thoughts about the, the volatility or what are, what, what's the volatility of these, these metals? Um, you know, we see, you know, a lot of us are familiar with watching gold and silver prices or watching oil and gas prices, watching stocks and bonds, those sorts of things. How do, how do these metals compare? Well, anybody who sort of, if I was to try and give you a prediction now, I mean, it's pure conjecture, right? Sure. Um, nobody can tell the future. But the way I like to look at it is I call it, and I think this is a, a real estate term, maybe from the US, which is a path of progress play, which is if you look at the path to where you are today, I mean, if you look back five years or 10 years and look at the certainties, like the facts, what really happened there and what's likely to happen, say, over the next five or 10, then you should be able to, barring a war or, you know, an earthquake or a comet coming from outer space, you should be able to, you know, reasonably predict what might happen, you know. And with a little bit of digging, you'll find, and it's sort of hidden in plain sight that, you know, what we've been discussing here is real, that China dominates this market and will do for the next five or 10 years. Um, China's increasing demand at the moment, but demand for these metals for electric, it's just, you, you, you can barely fathom. For example, for electric cars, right? Every car manufacturer in the world is going to be fully electric by 2030, right? Um, you know, um, like the US Army just announced, they plan to have to field an all electric, non-tactical fleet by 2035 and an all electric tactical fleet by 2050. So they're just, you know, supply cannot keep up with demand and, and there's no easy quick fix for this. There really isn't. I mean, it's just, Every now and again, these good opportunities come along. And this is one of them. You know, if people do their due diligence, they'll, they'll see that, you know. And proof of that is uh, for the last five years, um, rare earths have outperformed the FTSE, the S&P, and precious metals by a long shot, like not by, you know, a small amount, by a long shot, you know. I mean, again, 30, 35% a year. I would say my only suggestion to anybody investing is to be patient. To plan to be like if you really want to make some money plan to stay in for three or five years and you'll see great returns yeah yeah i i love that this investment that, that these metals they have utility right i mean you know we value gold and silver and diamonds and things like that because we put a value on them and what we think of you know yes. these things being valuable but really what what's the value they, they're not really used for anything there's no utility but these metals have utility you, that's it and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said that for me Seth because I that's what I you know that's that sums it all up which is rare earths have an intrinsic value gold and metal have an extrinsic perceived value so that's it I mean you know who, who doesn't want to buy an asset that's in demand where demand is continuing to increase supply is limited and also subject to disruption it's just a win-win it's one of those rare win-wins and and also you know, we are the only, you know, we couldn't do this in sort of metric tons or, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, we, we, we our ratio, you know, we've only a certain amount that we can do, you know, as well. Do you know what I mean? For example, you know, like say Volkswagen and BMW and Ford Motor Company, they won't come to us for rare earths. They, they're sourcing their own supplies. Volkswagen right now is trying to set up, uh, you know, directly with producers. So we're a little bit below that where, you know, our, we sell to industrial customers. Customers are, you know, like a factory, maybe there might be 500 people working there, and different things like that. So there's a, it's a little bit of a niche, you know, we wouldn't, you know, we won't, I won't be doing, you know, overly marketing either because there's only a certain amount of clients we'll be able to sort of take on board, you know. Right, right. I love it, man. Let's jump into the Freedom Four. It's time for the Freedom Four. What's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? Meditation, spiritual practice. 
Awesome. Awesome. Love that, man. With all your success, what is one limiting belief that you've crushed along the way and how did you get past it? That's a good one. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this is the right answer, but it's just keep going, you know. Um, it, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, just if you keep going, if you keep getting up every morning and putting one foot forward, you're going to go somewhere. And, and if you have an idea in your head where it is you want to go, you'll get there. I think we tend to, you know, you see somebody who's successful and you tend to think they started here and they went here, right? No, it was more like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and we all, you know, we all encounter perceived and real setbacks. But what I found has worked for me is I've always just kept going, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What's the one actual step our listeners can do right now to start creating more freedom? Ooh, um, I think to thine own self be true, you know, sit down, have a chat with yourself. Doesn't mean you're nuts, right? <laughs> Don't do it in public. <laughs> um, no, you know, just, I, I had to at some point as well, sit down and, and sort of decide who, you know, who do I want to be? Like, you know, what, what's the type of person I want to be? I think that came as a result of having left home and, you know, leave different cultures and different environments and different values. But find out who it is you want to be, you know, what, what values does that, you know, entail? And just, you know, and, and just, you know, just, because if you're just true to yourself, you don't have to worry about anybody else and everything else sort of falls into place after that you know whereas if you're trying to please a family member or you know you know maybe i don't know parent might want somebody oh i'm a lawyer you should be a liar or you know um or particular culture you might grow up in a town where everybody's silicon valley or sports find out for yourself what works for you and then it's just all sort of forts falls into place i think after that you know what who it is you want to be you know yeah, that's a great answer, man. Uh, I don't think anyone's put it that way before, but I love that. Last but not least, how has passive income made your life better? Money, money basically buys you freedom. You know, it doesn't make you happy. Um, and it can also, in moderation, you know, needs to, everything has to be sort of moderated. I mean, for me, I think I always use the analogy of, um, of like going to the gym, fitness. We need to be physically fit, spiritually fit, which means you, you should have a spiritual practice of some sort. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about God or religion now. I'm talking about a, a, a spiritual practice, um, emotionally fit and, um, and mentally fit, you know. And I think if we can moderate all of them, look, we know money doesn't make you happy because if that was true, all the millionaires would be happy and all the poor people would, would be <laughs> miserable. It's, it's a lot of times it's, you know, I, I know, especially in Latin America, people I met that had the least amount of uh, material possession were seemed to be, have much more peace of mind than those with, with seemingly everything. So, um, you know, I think, and we touched on it at the beginning of the conversation, Seth, which is, and I learned this from Viktor Frankl. He, he was a, a psychiatrist in Auschwitz. And he saw, you know, the worst of mankind, you know, and he wrote a book after called Man's Search for Meaning. And the key takeaway out of, there's a lot of good takeaways, but the key one for me was, he said, everything can be taken away from a person. Everything, except one thing. And that's our ability to choose which way we're going to go. Uh, in any given circumstance. And he was so right about that, you know, that we basically, freedom is, I think freedom is knowing that no matter what happens, you have a choice of how you're going to respond to that or react. I think respond is a better word. We always, always have a choice. You know, if you come across oppression, if you come across whatever it might be, you have a choice to how you respond to that. You, you know, you know, Martin Luther King and, Tainat Han, all the great, the great teachers, Lord Buddha, Lord Jesus, Lord Hindu, would all sort of boil down to that one thing is, um, you know, we, we have a choice in, in how we, like, we don't have a choice maybe about what happens to us, but we, we have a, the, the other, I suppose, another expression, I think it's um, John Kabat-Zinn, who's a US-American Buddhist, he said, uh, 
we can't stop the waves, but we can learn how to surf, you know? So it's just learning how to surf. Yeah, that that's perfect, man. I mean, yeah, we have a choice on how we, how we see things and how we accept things. Um, you know, we have a pretty big problem with that in, in America with social media and kind of comparing what, what our lives look like to what other people's look like from far. And, you know, that brings up, you know, makes us unhappy compared to, and I don't want to make generalizations, but kind of you mentioned in, in Latin America where people don't, you know, certain parts of Latin America, people don't have all these material possessions, but they're still, they're way happier and they're in a better place in their lives um, because maybe they don't make those comparisons. Maybe they're not worried about those material possessions and, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, a great, another American um, said something which is really sounds very um, counterintuitive, but he said there can be great freedom in poverty, you know, because you have nothing to worry about, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, and like in, in the rural interior parts of Colombia and Panama, people there, materially, they don't have everything, but let me tell you, when you meet them, they have peace of mind. They don't have mortgages. They don't have credit cards. They don't have bills. They wouldn't know what an insurance policy is or a debt, but there's mango trees, you know, they fish, there's, you know, they, they, they only live day to day and they only, they don't need to worry about tomorrow because they know this, they have enough for today and then tomorrow will be the same. It's, it's very subtle thing to recognize, but when you see it, you see that sort of some, you know, having too much is just more, it's just stuff to worry about, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lou, this has been an awesome talk, man. Awesome conversation. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Thank you, Seth. And I, I look forward to meeting you in San Diego or having you here in Ireland one day. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we bring you, I'm looking forward to taking you for a swim in the Irish Sea, you know? Then, uh, sounds, sounds cold, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, they'll hear you screaming back in San Diego. It's freezing. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, but, um, Luke, where can our listeners find out more about you? So the website is Strategic Metals Invest, or they can email me, uh, Louie, L-O-U-I-S, at strategicmetalsinvest.com. All right. Awesome, brother. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Seth. Thank you. Louie O'Connor, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. That was a compelling show for me personally, that's for sure, as rare earth metal investing is definitely not something I was previously familiar with. Major key Taking advantage of short windows of opportunity is a key strategy to implement. Real estate is the foundation. It's the rock. But, and and, and I'm always going to invest in real estate, first and foremost and always. But then you should also stay on top of trends and opportunities that can throw gas on the fire. Today, rare earth metals, cryptocurrencies, CO2 scrubbers are great examples of this. Keep your eyes open. All right. If you're ready for a change and ready to take action, Partner with us on our next passive real estate deal. Go to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com and join our Esquire Passive Investor Club. All right, kiddos, enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.